This is the English Suite Podcast, the voice of Widener University English and creative writing. This is Jim Esch. On today's episode of the English Suite Podcast, Widener undergraduate student Shabresa Yimirai has a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Morgan Frank, a poet, author, teacher, and editor-in-chief of the online magazine Memorias. Rebecca Morgan Frank is the author of four collections of poems. Her newest, OU Robot Saints, published by Carnegie Mellon University Press, 2021. Her previous collections are Sometimes We're All Living in a Foreign Country and The Spokes of Venus, both from Carnegie Mellon, and Little Murders Everywhere, published by Salmon Poetry, finalist for the Kate Tufts Discovery Award. Rebecca's poems have appeared in The New Yorker, American Poetry Review, Plowshares, 32 Poems, The Kenyon Review, Pleiades, The Southern Review, Poetry Ireland, Academy of American Poets, Poem a Day, The Slowdown Podcast, and elsewhere. Her fiction and essays have appeared in such places as Crazy Horse, Prairie Schooner, the Horizon Anthology, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, and her collaborations with composers have been performed and exhibited across the country. She is the recipient of the Poetry Society of America's Alice Faye de Castagnola Award and fellowships from the Mississippi Arts Commission, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, the Sewanee Writers Conference, the Ragdale Foundation, and the Writer's Room of Boston. Co-founder and editor-in-chief of the online magazine Memorias, Rebecca teaches in the MFA program in Poetry and Prose at Northwestern University's School of Professional Studies. She is a native of Charlottesville, Virginia, and is based in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Frank. It's great to see you again. We meet twice now, but you were a visiting guest recently in my creative writing class in writing for publication with Dr. Guzman. There you shared your experience as the co-founder and editor of Memorias, a journal of new verse and fiction. In the article that we read prior to visiting our class, Summoning the Bard, the 21st Century Literary Magazine on the web, you write about the wave of journals created by a generation of writers in their 30s. Your initial idea of starting an online journal over about 16 years ago. And the influence of the changing culture outside the literary institutions at that time. What were some of the initial challenges in creating memorials and how did the influence shape in what memorials would represent, if so? Great, thanks for that question. So um, memorials came out of my graduation from an MFA program. So when I look back, the challenges that we had were one, the web allowed us to create something without having a budget at the time, really, that was something that was more affordable, but it was also not as acceptable as a venue for publication as it is now. And so we had some work in convincing writers to allow us to use their work, um, to want to invest 
in us as a publication, um, you know, there were a lot of questions then. I think people didn't quite understand the scale of readership that the web could bring, and also that things that you published online would endure as long as the website stayed up, and uh, nothing quite quite goes away on the web. So it was it, it was an interesting time where we were all sort of figuring out what the role of publishing online would be. And for us, we wanted a chance to bring the kind of work we were interested in publishing um, to a broader audience. What were, if you'd like to mention, what were a few of the best resources that helped you along the way in developing the journal to be as successful as it has become? There were some great resources. Um, one of those was the Council of Literary magazines and presses. It's now called the Community of Little Magazines and Presses. And they had all kinds of resources, including a guidebook that they put out every year. They had some sessions to help editors at their offices in New York. And one of the really wonderful things that they had was um, a listserv. And, you know, this was before we have all these social media platforms that really made it easiest easier for us to have shared groups. So it was a listserv that was joined by so many wonderful editors. So you could follow the conversations there where we would share problem solving or ask questions. You know, if there was something as newer editors that we weren't sure how to handle, we could put out a question and get feedback or advice from, from editors who we admired at publications we admired. And it was, it was an incredible resource. And, and even just being able to sort of eavesdrop on other conversations and questions. We learned a lot about building a magazine. Great. And was there something that you had you known um, or, or that you, in fact, that you would wish that you had known prior to starting the magazine? I, I have seen people say this a lot or sort of knowing what you get into. I mean, I think it's about the commitment, right? I mean, one thing that I worry about it being so easy for people to, to set up, you know, in two minutes, you could start a journal on, you know, WordPress or Square or something as not really thinking through the consequence of what it means when people entrust you with their work and that they're expecting that the magazine will have a, you know, last more than a few months, right? And so, um, you know, 16, 17 years in, um, that that work is still available um, to us and uh, online. And, and so I wish that I had had a little, um, I, I didn't quite know that. And I think it's important for people to think about is what, what kind of commitment are you making to writers and to this magazine? What do you, what sort of lifespan do you see that you could spend with it? Um, there was so much that we didn't know. And and like I talk about in that essay, um, Summoning the Bard, in that, um, in that great uh, collection of, of essays, you know, I learned so much from the editors writing about their journals in there. But, you know, people didn't realize that their stuff was going to live on on the web, which we know now, you know, I mean, I feel like there's different new questions now, right? Um, that, you know, there's, there's, there's always, you know, evolving concerns for, for editors. And, um, and there, at that time, it was really getting people to understand what it meant to have your stuff online, that you actually, more people were going to see your work, right, than in the print Absolutely. venues. Yes. And, and that it would be up there forever or 
till we stopped paying a hosting fee. You know, I mean, so both of those things are true. Like you're stuck with it online or also it could just go away and you and, and writers sort of lose that control. So, you know, I, I there, there was a lot of learning and I think the lessons have really changed and, you know, um, so many different issues about accessibility and diversity that are that are um, sort of more uh, central conversations for for editors now, which is not to think that they weren't say that they weren't being thought about before, but um, but I think are the are the things that are really at the forefront of um, conversations for new magazines now. You are also the author of four poetry collections, starting with Little Murders Everywhere, The Spokes of Venus, Sometimes We're All Living in a Foreign Country, and your newest poetry collection, All Your Robot Saints, was published in February this year. Congratulations, by the way. Thank I'm, you. I'm loving the book. I'm reading it currently for the second time because it requires another reading. In an interview with Tara Batts earlier this year, you talk about reading Medieval Robots by Ellie Trude as part of your research <laughs> and incorporating Greek and Roman sources to your writing. When did you know you wanted to make the parallel of robots becoming as humanly possible and humans somehow acting machine-like and um, make that the, the theme of your book? Um, it was a great question. And, you know, I'm laughing because actually I have an event tomorrow night um, at Porter Square Books in Cambridge, Mass, virtually with Ellie Truitt. Um, it's sort of a dream come true. She, uh, her book, Medieval Robots, she's a, a historian, a scholar at University of Pennsylvania right. um, and agreed to be in this conversation. And what happened was um, I read that book and the stories were amazing. And uh, Medieval Robots was sort of the gateway book, and but also just had a huge influence on so many poems in the book. Um, and and from there, I I went to a lot of reading. I did a, a list of, on Lit Hub of, of some of these books. Uh, if if listeners want to find more books about uh, automata and and some about robots, but initially I was interested more in the history, right? Looking backwards of the last couple thousand years in both literary and created automata these self-moving machines and I was interested in to me how they seemed parallel to the making of a poem this idea of creating something that its very creation forces you to ask questions about what it is to be um, what it is to make what it is to grapple with the questions of being human right including the the reality of our mortality right because yes. what what the automata and the robot um are are something that we are, are creating it's made not born and and will likely or can uh out outlive us as we live in our human bodies any of the poems did you write any of them from of this collection before realizing your book's central theme or and adopted them later or did you write all of the entire book um after you had decided that you're going to make this parallel yeah i think 
you know, I started out with a couple of poems and I immediately thought that I was on to something and that I would, would continue exploring this thread of writing about automata. And then it expanded in two ways. One is as I was writing those early poems, my mother passed away. And so many of the poems became elegiac and it sort of set the course of the book that that those would be some of the questions um, th that I was exploring in terms of what what does it mean to make to make a life and and what is how does that relate to the way we encounter our own mortality or the mortality of those that we love and sort of moving into the tradition of the elegy and the other was that I ended up meeting a friend's neighbor was a roboticist. And so those conversations um, that I was able to have with him expanded my vision into including, you know, 20, right. 20th century and 21st century robots moving past, just looking historically and starting to discover some of the crazy things that are being created around us right now. It's, it's, sort of unbelievable we're we're living in the in the future um that we sometimes see packaged as a future in films but it's actually Happening. occurring around us these developments of robots and ai i think as poets were often turning to different subjects to provide us with a pool of metaphors, right? And a pool of language, a, 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 a different lens for looking at life, including sometimes what's happening in our own lives. Um, so for me, that's, they were sometimes a tool and often a catalyst, right? That looking into the work of other thinkers and makers and considering the ideas behind the making of automata really pushed me to think in new ways. And I think one thing that I'm always interested as a reader in poetry is the idea of a mind at work, right? I want a poem to be grappling with something and uh, not, that's not the work of all poems, but it's the work I want my poems to be doing is asking questions and wrestling with questions. And uh, the form of the poem allows us to live in the ambiguity that is true to our human experience, right? Who, who are we? Why are we here? <laughs> you know, everything about um, existing as a human being in this world. Would you like to read one of the poems? Right. Creation. That day we'd only just begun to build our own city on a slab with clay, toothpicks, cardboard, scraps of wood, found buttons and beads. I pressed with my hands a highway that passed it by, named it with a number everyone in my family had lived to. It was my ode to the original makers. I slept under the table and dreamt my whole city came to life. Waking, I told my story how the clay people had no mouths or eyes, were left as I had left them, had followed me around the conveniences I made them, and asked me where they came from. What could I tell them of the tools I'd found in the kitchen, the basement, on sale at the five and dime? 
Instead, I built them a place to gather, wrote out their mythology for my teacher. She said, you can't just make up gods. This is social science. I put a cross on the roof and passed. Three days later, my little city was stepped on, the burial simple. One trip to the school trash and that senseless god was dead. The people's stories mine to claim, mine to tell over and over again. What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a similar career to yours? I think the two things that make a writer is you write <laughs> and you read. Um, it's funny, I was, my high school just reached out to me for the first time to come be on a, a panel of writers. And I was thinking of the two guests that we had come to my high school that were writers. And one, um, I remember being so dissuaded. She said, only 2% of, she was a very famous fiction writer, said only 2% of writers make their living off writing. Don't do it. <laughs> and that was, um, and, and, and you know, I, I think of how easily we can be dissuaded, right? If someone says, oh, you won't make money, or oh, it's so competitive, or oh, it's so hard. But one thing that I can see in my life as a writer, as an editor, and a professor is that um, persistence and not giving up is is the one shared factor of all successful writers, right? That you have to be willing to put yourself out there and um, not be dissuaded. You know, if you're in a workshop or uh, have a teacher who gives you comments that you find discouraging, you have to be able to put that aside and keep writing and keep writing and keep growing, keep finding new audiences, keep sending your work out and keep believing that you have um, something worth saying or something worth making. I mean, you know, art can do different things. It's not always saying something directly, but um, uh, just being being persistent. And and as always, back to reading. I mean, as yes. that's that's how we learn. And also listening. That's the last thing I'll say is one of the best gifts um, my teacher, Gail Mazur, gave me when I left my MFA was she recommended me to be the assistant to um, the new director of a reading series she founded. And so I took the tickets and worked the lights and sold books every Monday night. Her two amazing uh, writers read every Monday. And, and I would also go to a lot of other readings. I was in a city where that was possible in Boston. And I think just all that listening um, and don't despair listeners if you don't live somewhere um, where you can go to live readings, although they're wonderful and please do. But there's so much available online now, like the Harvard Listening Booth or Penn Sound um, or just on YouTube, right? You can just everywhere you go, you can hear, especially after the pandemic, so many virtual events that have been recorded um, and just get to hear the sound of other writers. If you could step into my shoes, what would you ask yourself that I didn't? <laughs> oh, wow, that's a great question. You know, I, I, and I'm, I'm thinking I've used that question on people before, and now, um, now I'm um, wondering. Okay, you know, I thought about this uh, earlier. Is um, no one's ever asked me about sort of how I came to poetry or what what my early experiences of poetry were. Um, because I'm always interested in that and other writers. 
How did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I was always just writing even before it was in some formal way. And my college, um, you you got in by um, lottery in terms of being able to get to creative writing classes. So I didn't take a creative writing class um, until I took community ones, like later in my in my late 20s. So but I was I was always writing. And even before I did my MFA, I had a, a sort of a manuscript that nothing happened with, you know, but I, that I just kept writing poems and compiling them. Um, you know, I have them in a binder somewhere. Um, and so then in my MFA, you know, you write a thesis. And so that was an early draft of my first book, but it transformed incredibly. So my first book came out 11 years after I started my MFA. So after I graduated, I kept writing new poems and revising. I think a thesis, you're, you're learning how to write as you write it. So not all those poems needed to be in a book. Um, and then after I finished it, you know, about, um, then there was the finding a publisher for it and, and sending it out, which is a, a slow process because this contest system, you'd send to contests and then wait a year to hear, <laughs> and then you'd send out again. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was a long process. And um, I think, you know, that's an important thing for people to know is there's, there's no right age or timeline. I think we see, you know, incredible Amanda Gorman is the, you know, yes. poet, uh, inaugural poet, like it doesn't all happen to happen in your early 20s. There are a lot of stories like mine, where um, I wasn't even in graduate school till my 30s. And, and, um, you know, that trajectory, and I think, you know, I've worked hard to kind of maybe feel like I'm uh, making up for lost time, but there are people who publish their first books at 70. You know, there's there's no timeline that we have to be on um, doing the thing that you love. Um, on the other hand, I think we're learning with all these young poets who are coming out that you also don't have to wait forever and feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not, right. <laughs> you know, wise enough or good enough. There's some kind of happy, happy balance in between. Um, and I think the happy balance is that all of our roads are different, right? All of our timelines are different. That's our true. lives are different. Thank you so much for making time for us, the English Suite Podcast. We look forward to talking with you again in the future. This is, this is the pleasure is all mine. And I'm so grateful for this conversation. And thanks for reading the book. Special thanks to Dr. Guzman, my creative writing professor, who introduced us and who helped connect us for the interview. The English Suite is produced by Jim Esch with assistance from Sianna Bowers, Chloe DeFlumery, Christina Giska, Matt Lomas, Gabby Norris, and Shapresa Imurai. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends and followers. To send feedback or get more information about Widener English and creative writing, email us at WidenerEnglishSuite at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.